0: Uh, I'm so pleased to be able to introduce to you today Kate Davies, Senior Lecturer in American Literature at Newcastle University in England, where she teaches courses on and conducts research in 18th and 19th century women's writing and material culture of all sorts, including the history of textiles and visual and literary representations of the American Revolution, among other interests. In his stirring lecture last week, I say stirring in all the meaning of those words, that was quite a dynamic presentation, Terry Bowden argued that the post-revolutionary period was disastrous for ordinary Americans, owing to the fact that the democratic ideals that many of them fought for and that inspired the drafting of Pennsylvania's state constitution in 1776 were sacrificed by a founding elite eager to attract foreign investment in the fledgling nation, and its fragile political and economic institutions, according to any number of risky uh, speculation schemes that he gestured to. Well, in her well-received first book, Catherine McAuley and Mercy Otis Warren, The Revolutionary Atlantic and the Politics of Gender, Kate draws our attention to figures and voices that are conspicuous for their absence from Terry's otherwise excellent account. Elite founding women on both sides of the Atlantic, many of whom were related to the elite men about whom Terry spoke, including Abigail Adams, Judith Sargent Murray, and Macaulay and Warren, who were lifelong friends in transatlantic correspondence. Eminent historians of of the revolutionary period, the British Macaulay and the American Warren, Davies argues in her book, advocated in their writings, which included histories, letters, poems, and plays for Republican principles all the while attacking corruption and the masculine realms of political economy and war. Across its carefully researched and elegantly written chapters, Kate's book builds a persuasive case for heeding the intricate nexus between gender concerns and politics and economics during the age of revolution. In the case of the anti-federalist Warren in particular, Massachusetts, Boston, Davies shows us for the first time how the, quote, radical edge of her republicanism and the debates over the American war and the constitutional formation of the United States also meant that her conservative or federalist opponents might associate her writings with an insubordination thought equivalent to a sort of gender deviance, unquote. Author of the widely read in her own time, history of the rise, progress, and termination of the American Revolution, Warren became irritated by what she perceived to be anticipating Terry Bouton's argument last week, the scuttling of the nation's foundational principles by members of the very founding elite um, with whom she was socially intimate, as she wrote in one letter to Macaulay that criticized the failure of the Washington administration to secure basic rights for the nation's citizens. Quote, and this is Warren, It ill becomes an infant government whose foreign and domestic advantages are large and whose resources are small to begin in the splendor of royalty, to damp the spirit of agriculture by impost and excises and instead instead to deprive deprive the people of the means of of subsistence, to amass sums for the augment of exorbitant salaries, to support the regalia of office, and to puff up the ostentatious pomp for which the ambitious have sighed and desired." So I ask, how did Terry miss that quote for his (laughs) PowerPoint? In treating the substantial correspondence between Warren and Macaulay, Kate directs our attention to the importance of reckoning with elite women's voices of the period like Warren's, founding figures who had much to say about both pro and con, the political, economic, and cultural wheelings and dealings that Boughton argues characterized the founding elite's actions during the wildly speculative post-revolutionary moment. In two book projects that Kate is researching currently Textile, two words, uh, The Literary Fabric of Modern Britain, and Where You Are Not, Women Writing in the Sense of Place in Revolutionary Philadelphia, Davies is attempting something quite magical, namely, to combine her love of historic textiles with her passion for sewing and knitting, and locating for us anew the place of women in 18th and 19th century networks of global politics and trade. Indeed, some of you in the audience today, we have, I think, a bigger audience than typical today. uh, So I think it proves the point. Some of you in the audience today, no doubt, know Kate Davies first and foremost as a designer, including her famous owl pattern sweater that is all over the internet. (laughs) And I can confirm it's, it's spectacular. As I perused her fantastic blog this past week, I noticed an entry wherein she writes to her many fans about designing a special outfit to wear for a forthcoming public lecture she is to deliver in the United
1: States.
0: (laughs) Well, as I think you'll see in a moment, she's done an amazing job with that outfit. I think we're in for quite a feast for the eye and ear as Kate talks to us today about her current research into manuscripts, architecture, landscapes, artworks, and textiles circulating in the Atlantic world and beyond during the 18th and 19th centuries in her talk, Apocalypse on Market Street, Women, Space, in the Revolutionary City. Welcome, and thanks, Kate, for making the long journey across the Atlantic to speak to us today about some of your fascinating research.
2: Thanks, Sean. I'm really very, really pleased and really honoured to be here, so thanks so much for inviting me, it's very kind. Um, I feel like I've got to, a lot to live up to now. Um, when I began preparing this talk, I was sort of thinking about uh, you know, the kinds of 18th century women, American women, that you might have um, read about and heard about. Um, And I thought about uh, the letters between John and Abigail Adams, which I know some of you who are um, uh, uh, studying this semester will have probably read. And I also thought about the recent um, HBO series on on, uh, John Adams, representing John Adams' life, um, which I really enjoyed. But one of the things that sort of irritated me about it was that there are not really any women in it um, at all, apart from Abigail Adams. And, you know... um, Another frustrating thing about that series is that um, we only ever really see Abigail Adams um, as the private figure behind the public man that is John. We only ever see her writing to him. We don't see her writing to her her friends and and correspondents and nor do we see her writing as she felt that she was writing to an audience beyond her own time. So we, we never really see the public world of Abigail Adams and I think um, there are ways perhaps of uh, confusing those categories of public and private that we might attach to ideas of masculine and feminine um, and I hope to be talking um, today about uh, some of the ways um, that we might think about complicating those categories. So. I'm going to be talking today about um, another 18th century woman writer, and she's a woman who's sort of much um, closer to home for you all, I think. And her name is Hannah Griffiths, and she's a woman of Philadelphia and of Pennsylvania. Um, so I'm going to tell you a bit about um, the world of Hannah Griffiths. And I, I doubt that many of you really will have heard of her. but. Um, I'm hoping by the end of my talk that that lots of you will want to know much more about her because she's quite a brilliant, I think, 18th century writer. Um, She's a superb poet as we're going to see. And she's someone who for me um, really captures um, what's so interesting about 18th century America, the messiness, the energy, the cultural richness, and particularly the the intellectual and political fascination um, of America's first city, of Philadelphia um, at this important moment of change. Um, There's a nice view of Philadelphia from Birch's views um, in 1800. So Hannah Griffiths was born in Philadelphia, in America's first city, in 1727, into um, one of the lesser branches of a very prominent uh, Quaker family called the Norrises. Um, And her great uncle, Isaac Norris, he'd been um, 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 a founding member of the colony's Quaker proprietorship. And his uh, wealthy male heirs and uh, Griffith's relatives, well, they stood at the heart, by the middle of the 18th century, of the colony's 18th-century governance. So the uh, Norrises were famous for their country house, which was built in the early 1700s, called Fairhill. It's four miles north of Philadelphia there. You can see Philadelphia in the large red circle, and Fairhill with a little cupola on the top of it um, in the small red circle. This is a very um, elaborately built house um, in 18th century terms, and it's a house that really belies um, any stereotype, I think, that you have of of Quaker plainness. It's a house that's built in some high style. Indeed, as John Adams remarked when he went to visit John Dickinson there in 1775, Adams found it, you know, far too um, showy uh, for his tastes. Um, Hannah Griffith's parents both died when she was a child, and she was left with a legacy of 20 pounds a year and uh, she was taken in together with her sister Mary um, by uh, their uncle Isaac Norris, and they both grew up here at Fair Hill. And the house um, sat in an elevated position above the expanding city of Philadelphia with a fine view of the River Delaware. And like many houses built in this period, the surrounding landscape and the house's um, position in that landscape became a way um, of um, expressing the connection of the inhabitants, the elite inhabitants to that landscape, to the landscape of Pennsylvania. So for Isaac Norris, the fine prospect view that he was enjoying of Philadelphia bespoke his connection to the city, his stake in it, his family's purchase on it. And indeed, the women of his family also felt this way as well. Of course, they weren't legislators like Isaac Norris. They didn't participate in the political public sphere but they nonetheless sat at the heart of Pennsylvania's burgeoning literary public sphere. Um, Norris's female relatives were all women of considerable learning, and whose learning was much admired. Fairhill had a large library, Um, it was a separate building set in a beautiful garden, Um, and this library was filled with a very fine collection of books. And then before Franklin um, establishes the library company in Philadelphia, I think it's interesting to note that the sort of the best libraries really in Pennsylvania are in private collections um, like the one at Fairhill or like the one that um, the Logans had uh, nearby um, Stenton. So it was in this library at Fairhill that Hannah Griffiths spent her youth and it was here that uh, with the encouragement of her aunt, Eliza Norris, that she began reading Milton and Locke and Shakespeare and Pope, and it was here that she began learning about the Commonwealth political tradition that that, um, stood behind debates on American independence. And it was here as well that she began writing poetry and that she began to think of herself as a writer. As well as the women of the uh, Norris family, um, Fairhill played host to many other women, uh, many other famous women writers, women such as the poet of the Susquehanna, um, Susanna Wright. Um, Susanna Wright Wright was a a single woman, and so was uh, Griffith's aunt Eliza Norris, and so indeed were Hannah Griffiths and her sister. They were all single women, this is something I think which is important and perhaps we should bear in mind. Um, In one of her letters, uh, Griffiths compared the women of Fair Hill to, quote, the ladies of Millennium Hall, and this is a reference to a novel of that name by a British novelist, uh, a woman called Sarah Scott, and this novel celebrated a fictional community, a utopian community of single learned women in, um, in a large country house. So, um, like Millennium Hall then, um, Griffiths saw Fair Hill as a sort of ideal space, a space that fostered women's community, their learning, and their friendship. So at Fair Hill, Griffiths begins to write poetry. And um, she begins circulating this poetry in manuscripts. And these manuscript poems um, are admired by other women in her extended family circle, who transcribe them uh, for their friends to read. So copies of Griffith's poems began to circulate further afield, um, to Jersey, to Delaware, to New York, and soon um, she began to find that she was speaking to an audience, she found herself at the heart of a literary network, a public sphere of readers, without ever submitting her work to a publisher or seeing her name in print. And the fact that Griffith's work circulates almost entirely in manuscripts is one reason I think that we've not heard much about her, but that doesn't make her less important in 18th century terms. You know, what I'm saying to you is here that there is a lively um, literary public sphere in 18th century America that's beyond the world of print, and at the heart of this literary network were many great women writers, women like Hannah Griffiths. but despite living in the uh, rural idyll of uh, Fair Hill, Hannah Griffiths thought of herself as a Philadelphian. She was born in Philadelphia, and she loves the city, as you can see in this early poem of hers. Um, and she writes, Hail, once again, dear natal seats, you plodding sits and slippery streets. The very smoke your chimneys lend are pleasing prospects to your friend. And oh, the scurrying crowds that beat the broken pavement of each street, a sites more fair than all the plains that dress the Songster's rural strains. Now, I love the liveliness of this poem and and its lightheartedness, the energy of it and the mobility of it. And I love the way that she celebrates um, the sensory experience of life at street level, the smoke, the crowds, the slippery pavements and so on. And she's saying here, you know, um, that she would rather experience life at street level um, than observe the city at a distance, observe it from the prospect view of the the rural um, retreat of Fair Hill. So born in Philadelphia, Hannah Griffiths considers herself to be a citizen of Philadelphia. Someone whose sense of place is written out in the routes that her feet are taking along the streets of the city. She loved to walk in the streets of the city and unlike many other 18th century women, she writes about walking in an urban environment as a genuine pleasure. And in 1770, after uh, one of the Norris uh, daughters uh, married the wealthy Pennsylvanian politician, John Dickinson, who I'm sure you've all heard of, um, Hannah Griffiths and her sister Mary, together with uh, her ageing aunt, Eliza Norris, they all left Fairhill and they moved permanently to Philadelphia. By the mid-18th century, Philadelphia was really booming. Um, It was the second biggest city in the British Empire after London. You know, it's bigger than Liverpool, Manchester, Birmingham, Norwich, any of the um, British cities. It's an incredibly diverse city. Um, The Quaker hegemony of the early part of the century had by then been eroded by inhabitants from Scotland, from Ireland, from Germany. And on the streets of Philadelphia, you'd have heard many languages, German, French, Portuguese. And it houses the most culturally and racially diverse population of any colonial American city. So, it's home to a large number of uh, free and enslaved African Americans. Philadelphia's population was expanding rapidly in mid century, and the uh, relatively small city centre was undergoing a building boom to accommodate it. And the uh, building of the city in the second half of the 18th century sort of concentrated in these blocks here, um, um, west of uh, 6th Street. Um, there again, we see the Sort of development of Philadelphia in the second half of the 18th century in these blocks here, um, and here are some famous views of 18th century Philadelphia from William Birch's um, series, which are wonderful. Um, but I think that lots of these these uh, these images by Birch. Um, particularly this one, of the empty market. Why is it empty? This has always seemed very curious to me. And and, uh, this one, which was built for the President of the United States. Um, They give you a sort of mistaken sense, I think, of what um, 18th century Philadelphia was like. Um, It's as if, uh, to create a sort of ideal of polite order, Birch has emptied the city out. Um, He's made it a sort of vacancy. Um, um, And this sort of... uh, representation of an elegant orderly metropolis are um you know they're, they're meant to suggest um an idea of regularity and urban harmony that's their purpose that's the account that birch is producing of the city here um, and i think you know pictures that i showed you before of the, of the grids they do that as well really they, they it it looks so regular um But actually, I think what's very distinctive about the urban space of Philadelphia in this period is that it's really a jumble. So while the grid is built on these cross streets, which are very, very wide, and the width of the streets of Philadelphia really impresses all European visitors, who of course are used to sort of higgledy-piggledy layouts of uh, medieval cities, you know. Um, And and while the grid also produces these sort of wonderful long vistas, you know, so your eye can travel the whole extent of the city. the grid actually hides a very dense uh, architectural um, muddle, which you can sort of have a sense of here in this this map from the 1790s in the Library Company. Um, So by mid-century, the owners of the city's prime lots, which are these uh, um, blocks sort of hugging uh, the um, Delaware here, um, the owners of these lots began to carve up um, each block into smaller and smaller parcels. So each lot is divided into three or four alleys and uh, the alleys are pushed inwards and pushed outwards to accommodate yards and uh, courtways. And more and more houses begin to be built in these spaces and more and more people cram themselves into the dwelling places of these few blocks. Um, So as the architectural character of these few blocks became quite mixed and incoherent, so too um, did the demographic. And here we have a... uh, wonderful prints from uh, Philadelphia artist um, Charles Wilson Peel depicting the accident in Lombard Street in 1787 um, in which a servant here has dropped her pie for want of thought. Um, I've I've included it here for several reasons one is which one of which is that uh, it depicts a pie uh, which I quite like and uh, Also, that's not just incidental. Hannah Griffiths had what she called a particular fondness for pies. So I feel that it's appropriate that this print is here. Um, But uh, the real purpose of this print is to show you how uh, the architecture of uh, the streets of Philadelphia are quite mixed at this time. So we have this very elegant uh, brick building here, which has a fire mark on it, which suggests that the owner of it um, is wealthy enough to afford uh, fire insurance. Whereas along down here, we have rickety um, uh, frame houses, Um, and you can see the market at the end there. So you've got a mix of um, domestic and commercial property, and you've got a mix of kind of ramshackle neglected cheap buildings and elegant um, brick buildings. Um, Here's another, here's some more street food. This is pepper pot, uh, um, and here you see Philadelphians of many classes enjoying um, a bowl of um, spicy soup, and again we see a sort of um, a sense of the lively, mixed um, demographic of the city. We have an African-American entrepreneur dispensing her soup to some appreciative consumers. Uh, there's several people enjoying the soup, including this rather um, shabby-looking uh, ex-soldier here and these elegant young women who are taking a break um, from their shopping. So life at street level in this um, um, this muddled, mixed um, Um, urban environment it seems to me is really what Hannah Griffiths likes about um, Philadelphia. So as I said in 1770 she moves back to the city with her aunt and her sister and uh, they moved to a small house in Norris Alley. The alley was called Norris for a reason uh, because the block between Walnut Street and Chestnut Street and Front Street and Second Street had originally been purchased by her great uncle Isaac Norris. He'd built um, this large house which fronted Second Street and it was known as the Slate Roof House and it had become famous and remained famous really throughout the 19th century because um, Penn had stayed there. Um, So this house, the Slate Roof House, um, was um, by the time that Hannah Griffiths moved to the city in 1770, it was a boarding house, quite an upscale boarding house really. and Griffiths and her sister and her aunt, they moved into one of these small rental properties that you can see just behind those trees there. Um, number 8, Nor- Norris Alley, they moved to. So here you can see Hannah Griffiths' neighbourhood um, and Griffiths, uh, you can see Griffiths' house there with the, in the pink circle and you can see the slate roof house there, fronting 2nd Street. Here we have a site plan of the, uh, of the layout and the inhabitants of the alley. Um, this is uh, uh, around the years um, when, when, when Griffiths moved back. And this should give you a sense, really, of the, uh, the mixed architecture and the mixed demographic of Griffiths' neighbourhood. This is very, very different from the elite homogeneity um, um, that uh, Griffiths was used to at Fair Hill. So, you can see here uh, the slate roof house and, and the large grounds of the slate roof house. There are these, these gardens behind it. Um, there are large houses at the end of the, of the alley, fronting the uh, front street there and uh, second street here. Um, these are elegant uh, three or four storey houses owned by wealthy merchants. And this house is still standing, the Thomas Bond house. Um, so. Within the alleyway itself, these houses here and Hannah Griffith's house, and these houses here, these are much smaller dwellings. These are tiny houses um, of between 12 and 24 feet in width, um, and they're inhabited by artisans and shopkeepers mainly um, of both um, sexes. For example, we have the, um, the bake shop um, here, where of course Hannah Griffiths um, buys her pies, and um, we have several single women um, uh, a, a school teacher and a widow, and of course Griffith's own household there at number eight. Griffith's is listed in the city directory as a gentlewoman. Um, a gentlewoman, a woman of independent means, just as a man might be listed as a gentleman. Um, and you'll also see that there are many boarding houses. This uh, alleyway is, you'll remember, just a block away from the river. So, um, you know, it's, it's servicing the commercial traffic of the river, um, travellers and mariners. Um, So, many of these houses in the dockside are used to accommodate an itinerant um, um, population. And you'll also see um, other kinds of buildings for different kinds of uses, small-scale industrial uses, such as the um, stocking workshop there, sugar boiler, um, and the bake oven where you can take your bread um, to be baked. What you don't see in this site plan, really, is uh, how many people were in these different buildings. In 1772, this would have averaged six people per building, so there are a lot of um, inhabitants in these, these small two-up, two-down dwellings. And you might also not be um, immediately aware of the cosmopolitan mixture of the people in the alleyway. There are men here like Achilles Parker, who's a free black, and he's a successful wine merchant. Um, and the uh, alley is home to several um, French immigrants as well. So this small block, the block between Chestnut and Walnut and um, Front and Second upon which um, Isaac Norris had set his slate roof house in 1680 was now home to this kind of cheek-by-jowl community of artisans and merchants, of labourers and sailors and of course gentlewomen like Hannah Griffiths, her aunt and her sister. Griffiths House was a very small building Um, In fact, it was the smallest on the alleyway. It had the lowest fire insurance premium on the block. Here it is. Um, It was 12 by 24 feet and it was divided into four rooms and a tiny little attic. Um, And at the back of the house they had a separate kitchen and a a hen coop. They owned several hens. Um, And you can see here that the size of the house is reduced by this um, passageway which led to the courtyards behind. It was rather like this house which still stands now in Elfrith's Alley, which some of you may have um, been and visited. This particular house are several 19th century additions, but I picked this one you see because you have um, a bricked up alleyway there, which is just like um, Griffith's house. And you can see how the alleyway actually narrows the lower story. So Griffiths loves her house and um, she loves the bustling streets and alleyways of Philadelphia. While she had lived in relative luxury at Fair Hill, um, she'd always really felt her status, I think, as a family dependent. But in this tiny house, looking after her um, ageing aunt and her invalid sister, she regards herself as the head of the household. So in this small house, in this neighbourhood and in the city, Griffiths comes to feel an important degree of independence. She lived on the lot which had been owned by her family since the city's founding. This was a genealogical connection which was to her an immense source of pride. But the Quaker tenet of humility was also very important to Hannah Griffiths. In fact, she was very sniffy about the ostentation of her wealthy relatives, and particularly about John Dickinson after he moves into Fair Hill. And she constantly emphasizes the relative inferiority of her dwelling place as a virtue. She refers to her house as my hut or my poor hut and in the 18th century hut is the word that you'd use for the house of a peasant, um, a hovel. And Griffith's uh, wealthy relatives also thought that her style of living was very poor indeed and constantly made remarks about the inferiority of her furnishings and her crockery. Uh, she only ate off pewter, for example. So I mean, I've included this quotation here, um, in which she expresses her desire to get a small, plain, oiled floor cloth to replace her raggedy carpets, um, as just one example of very many um, characteristic remarks about um, her the plainness of her furnishings. Um, So by this time, as I said, um, Eliza Norris, uh, Griffith's aunt, was an invalid, and uh, her sister, too, was also unwell. And so these two women live upstairs. In fact, they hardly ever seem to come downstairs at all. Um, And Hannah Griffiths sort of takes over the the bottom story of the house, and she lives in those two rooms uh, downstairs with her writing desk and her books. She spends her money on books, on paper and ink, and she's constantly borrowing pamphlets and newspapers from the men and women of her wide family circle. So uh, Griffith's hut is a space for reading and writing. Hannah Griffith's really lived to read and write. Um, You might know Virginia Woolf uh, wrote about the importance of a room of one's own to the woman writer, by which of course she means um, a space for independent thought. Uh, Well, Hannah Griffith's small house on Norris Alley fulfils precisely this function for her. It's a hut of one's own. Um, And this hut becomes the situated haven of her writing, of her identity as a Quaker, as a woman and as a moderate Whig, as a person of urban sensibilities, as a Philadelphian. Um, So this hut lends Hannah Griffiths a sense of place. Um, She's profoundly attached to number eight Norris Alley and In a a sort of widening set of circles, she's also attached to the neighbourhood surrounding it, to the city and the colony, and indeed later the state in which she lived. Indeed, she felt in some measure that she came to speak for that city and that state, um, that she had a purchase on Philadelphia and Pennsylvania, just as the men of her family might have felt themselves to do. So this hut became the centre of women's literary community in Philadelphia um, Griffiths kept writing poems and her friends would come round and copy them um, and uh, their friends would copy them in turn and in a sense this hut was a hub um, of, a, of a very wide and expansive literary network. It was a place full of literary discourse and debate, a place of literary production at the heart of a, of a, of a, of a uh, small but nonetheless significant public sphere of women readers and writers. Um, And here's one of those poems that expresses Griffith's um, sense of place. And in its confidence of address, its articulation of regional pride and its profound sense of place, you can see how uh, she has these um, intense um, feelings of local connection and how those feelings enable her to consider herself as the public voice of Pennsylvania. So Griffith writes, In western climes, remote from Britain's state, and tinsel glare, the idol of the great stands Pennsylvania by just laws maintained, for virtue and for public credit famed. Unknown to princes, nor to courts allied, the pride of life, not monumental pride, the mitred prelate, nor the gartered lord, immoral pleasure or inhuman sword founded her glory. No decrees of state thus bid her flourish and pronounced her great. Heaven blessed the favourite spot with full increase, her arts were justice and her arms were peace. So we've got, you know, religious freedom, there's no bishops, we've got equality, there's no aristocracy, no class system. Um, Pennsylvania is a space of um, unique um, to Griffith's political and moral virtue. It's a spot that's been chosen and blessed by the divine. This is a very familiar uh, um, uh, um, American 18th century topos. So I've said that Hannah Griffiths was widely read in political theory, and during the years that immediately preceded the Revolutionary War, she developed a certain notoriety for writing very lively satirical verse in opposition to the British government. In these poems, she speaks confidently as a woman of Pennsylvania, as what she calls a daughter of liberty. And here's one of those poems, Um, I shall read it. Um, She writes, Since the men from a party, or fear of a frown, are kept by a sugar plum quietly down, supinely asleep and deprived of their sight, are stripped of their freedom and robbed of their right. If the sons so degenerate the blessings despise, let the daughters of liberty nobly arise. And though we've no voice but a negative here, the use of the taxables let us forbear. Stand firmly resolved and bid Grenville to see that rather than freedom, we part with our tea. And well, as we love the dear draft when a dry, as American patriots, our taste we deny. So what I love about this poem, written on the eve of the American Revolution, is how clearly it suggests that women are political beings Um, how the verse assumes that women have a public role, which is quite separate um, from that of men. Um, Men are politicians, says Hannah Griffiths. Men are involved with political parties, but the daughters of liberty are of no party. They've got strong local attachments rather than party attachments, and perhaps Griffiths implies these attachments are stronger and more trustworthy, precisely because they're not open to the corruption of party politics. So though women are excluded officially from the political process, though we've no voice but a negative, says Griffiths, she also says they can nonetheless express their politics through effective action, in this case by boycotting the commodities of Britain by sacrificing their love of tea to their love of liberty. Um, So I'll read a little more of the poem. She writes, Pennsylvania's gay meadows can richly afford to pamper our fancy or furnish our board. And paper sufficient at home still we have to assure the wiseacre we will not sign slave. When this homespun shall fail to remonstrate our grief, we can speak viva voce or scratch on a leaf. Refuse all their colors, though richest of dye, when the juice of a berry our paint can supply. To humour our fancy, and as for our houses, they'll do without painting, as well as our spouses. (laughs) Well, to keep out the cold of a keen winter morn, we can screen the Nor'west with a well-polished horn. And trust me, a woman by honest invention might give this state doctor a dose of prevention. (laughs) So Griffith's really here. She's encouraging the women of Pennsylvania to become writers, to assure the wiseacre we will not sign slave. Um she's saying not just that women have the right to speak, but that it's necessary and important that they do so. And I love how um, you know her local attachments are expressed in this poem by local produce, by the fertile fields of Pennsylvania. You know, she's saying, we don't need the uh, the commodities of a tyrannical empire. we've got all we need uh, right here. I also like the fact that she suggests, you know, that um, American men are more manly and more freedom-loving than the British because they don't use cosmetics, um, and and this very sort of brisk, straightforward um, approach to uh, material life and political life is very characteristic of her. She sees her identity as a poet as a business of honest invention. Um, So in this important poem, Griffiths is is carving out a space for a distinctively feminine and a distinctively American um, political identity. An identity whose components are local attachment, political impartiality, direct action and the honest invention of writing. And her reference at the end uh, uh, of that extract that I just read uh, to you, um, to the state doctor, um, suggests how absorbed she is in the political culture of the moment. What she's talking about is um, Charles Grenville um, um, being represented as the state doctor in this um, um, political print, this famous print, in which he's depicted um, holding the body of America down and forcing her to drink British tea while an ashamed and disgusted uh, figure of Britannia turns her face away there in the background. Um, So what's interesting about Griffith's writing in the pre-revolutionary years um, is how local attachment underwrites the confidence of her literary voice. But after the war begins, after the revolution develops, her perspectives become rather more fractured, rather more messy, perhaps rather more reflective of the particular spaces of Philadelphia in which she lived and wrote. So Hannah Griffiths was a moderate Whig and she was also a Quaker. But by the early years of the war, um, it became very, very difficult for a Quaker woman like her to sustain and articulate that Whiggish identity by writing uh, pro-revolutionary poems like the one I just read. So while the Quaker meeting enforced a very strict code of conduct forbidding all friends to assist the Republican war effort, so the Republican state government had imposed tests and uh, oaths of allegiance on Quaker men in order to identify and weed out those who were still loyal to the British crown. As a woman, Griffith's political identity was not the site of a public and visible conflict in the same way as that of Quaker men, but she certainly experienced such political and religious conflicts in terms of her physical geography. On the 18th of April, 1775, Hannah Griffiths had a dream which she recorded. About six o'clock in the fourth morning, I awoke with a terror from a dream. Methought I was walking up Market Street, where near Old Sam Garigue's shop, I was stopped by a violent heat, which seemed to take my breath away and prevented my going on. After standing some time, seeing a number of people running ye other side ye street, I crossed through ye meal market, where there appeared a most extraordinary phenomenon, a ball of fire in ye air, ye houses all ready to take fire in flames, and ye people fainting and dying in ye streets. After some time, ye fire disappeared, and a large cloud of an uncommon bigness appeared, which kept moving around, in ye same manner as ye fire had done, it being drawn up in different places, as ye Venetian curtains." After some time, something clothed all in black, whose back looked like a man, but whose head reached ye tops of ye houses, endeavoured to catch at ye cloud many times, but could not, as it still moved away. Soon after, a voice spoke from behind it, very awfully, in these words You are a sinful and iniquitous people, and stopped. You may punish first, and made a pause, but you will be surely and sorely punished. On which I awoke. Well, the recording of dreams is a a common uh, feature of Quaker culture um, in the 17th and 18th centuries. And the first Quaker colonists of Pennsylvania, they regarded their dreams as um, spiritual and moral maps in ways that are quite clearly bound up with the unfamiliar terrain of the new world. And this interconnection between moral and physical geography is obviously very important in Griffith's dream. The dream takes place one block north and one block west of her own house. Um, It's less than half a mile away, and as you might expect from Griffiths, it's very specific in its sense of place. Sam Garigues, who she mentions, was a well-known Quaker merchant who kept an apothecary shop at the intersection of Third and Market Streets. Griffiths is walking along Market Street in her dream. And this frightening event occurs um, around the commercial hub of Philadelphia, its busiest streets the axis of its pedestrian and business traffic. So the intersection there of Third and Market really epitomizes the city's daily life. And Griffiths appears in her own dream as part of that daily life, as a participant or representative of the city's street culture. She's a witness to this apocalyptic warning to its people. But her role is also prophet-like in that she seems separated from the action of the dream and seems to be there to be singled out to communicate its meaning, Cassandra-like. And there are several very striking things about the dream, I think. Um, perhaps the most striking is the sense of not one, but several competing threats. The, um, there's the fireball that she begins with, and that's replaced by the alarming amorphous cloud that's moving sort of octopus-like over the city. And then there's the uncanny figure of the giant um, black um, clad um, man. And then you hear that, that minatory voice from inside the cloud with its menacing predictions of, of punishment and, and retribution. So there are several hostile forces here that are engendering um, Philadelphia's suffering. But who are the sinful and iniquitous people? Are they all Philadelphians or are they just some of them? Are they a particular Quaker faction? Are they the revolutionaries who are seeking uh, separation from Britain? Is British imperial vengeance contained in the fireball? Who is being punished um, and by whom? Um, The place of Griffith's dream is important, and its timing is also important, too. Um, Griffith dates uh, these, these apocalyptic events very specifically to April the 18th, 1775. This is the night, of course, of Paul Revere's famous ride. It's the night the war begins, the night that precedes the first battle of what was seen as a civil war, a painful civil war. And in Philadelphia, this idea of a civil war Um, didn't just capture the unnatural opposition of Britain and America, of the mother country and her children colonies, but it also suggested the city's many internal conflicts. Um, Between, for example, the national and the local, Um, So as well as being home to the uh, Continental Congress, um, um, the state of Pennsylvania, as you will have heard last week, is run by a local um, political body, um, which in its support of democratic reform, including the extension of the franchise to working men, is perhaps the most political institution in the world um, at that time. Um, So as well as the sense of of a dire external threat to Philadelphia, so Griffith's dream really conveys the sense of its many internal conflicts conflicts between national and local governance, between uh, loyalist and Republican factions, and perhaps between and within these different political and religious groups as well. So the different threatening forces of Hannah Griffith's dream seem to portend this layering and multiplying of the war's external and internal conflicts. And their warning is written out in the paths of her dreaming along the streets of Philadelphia, around the axis of Third and Market. And in her dream, she's become the city's moral compass. Um, And throughout the war, Griffiths begins to use her poetry and her very specific sense of connection to the urban topography of Philadelphia to write a map of meaning, to chart her city's increasingly bewildering experience of the war. Um, She becomes stubbornly attached to her house, to her alleyway, and she refuses to leave Philadelphia to retreat to safety, um, despite the insistence of her relatives um, throughout the war, so I'm going to spend what time remains to me in talking about um, her experience of the war Um, to escape the invading British army. So the streets out of Philadelphia were filled with um, fleeing refugees, and if you were a Whig, like Hannah Griffiths, um, in September of 1777, you would have got out of Philadelphia. Um, and this included um, Quaker Whigs too. And, you know, most of Griffith's family, um, with the exception of herself and her sister and her ageing aunt, um, they all got out of the city. And by staying in Philadelphia, you are effectively identifying yourself as a loyalist. But Griffith was not a, lo- a loyalist. As we've seen, she's deeply opposed to Britain, British imperial policy, and the British occupation of the city. Um, during the Battle of Germantown, that October, the British army burned Far- Fairhill um, to the ground. Um, here you can see um, a British map. Um, uh, I can't see the little note, but uh, Fairhill is marked on the map as Dickinson's, a place of the rebels, burnt. Um, and Griffith's Aunt Eliza Norris feels the burning of Fair Hill as a terrible blow. And and she dies in Philadelphia the following spring. And Griffiths writes a memorial to her aunt in which she, like Hill, is a sort of place, a place that's become threatened by exterior forces and torn apart um, from the inside. The storm is hushed, writes Griffiths, no longer shall thou stand a striking emblem of thy bleeding land. And this lost familial connection to the land of of Pennsylvania makes Griffiths more dogged, more determined, more stubborn in her attachments and in her production of poetry that expresses the experience of her city through the experience of war. Um, While Griffiths is grieving for her aunt in Philadelphia, everyone around her seems to be having an excellent time. Um, The British start living it up in the city, which you can see here by these British generals who were boozing, basically, and boozing and snoozing um, whilst um, Britain's uh, European enemies milk the cow of Britain um, in the front there. Um, so Griffiths became incredibly aware, I think, during this period that the streets of her neighbourhood had totally changed ownership, that they are now controlled by fashionable Tory loyalists and the British military. Um, in, in May of 1778, the British Army's um, Philadelphia amusements culminated in that, that uh, spectacularly choreographed carnival of a military chutzpah and fashionable excess that was known as the Meschianza. Here's a ticket to the Meschianza, and it was a sort of mock medieval tournament, um, a sort of uh, goodbye party um, to the um, uh, then disgraced alcoholic General Howe, who we saw sleeping in the previous print. Um, Living at the heart of the city, like like Hannah Griffiths did, it would have been very hard to avoid the Mesquianza and its elaborate preparations. Um, This is a scrap of a silk dress that was made for Peggy Chew and uh, um, worn at the Mesquianza. The price of French silk was absolutely exorbitant um, during the war, as you can imagine this was a grotesquely expensive dress. And you can imagine to the, uh, the very homespun Hannah Griffiths, how this is a dress of you know obscene luxury. Um, the route of the mescianza passes right by Griffiths' house. Um, the knights and their ladies in costume um, paraded up Second Street and across Walnut and they gathered on Walnut Street landing there. Um, this is a poem that Griffiths wrote satirising in uh, the Mescianza and its triumphal arches raised on blunders and true Don Quixotes made of wonders. And in this sort of manuscript on the left-hand side here, you see John Andre's original sketch for a Mescianza costume um, for a dress very much like the one I just showed you that was worn by Peggy Chu. And here you see a transcription of Griffith's um, poem on the Mescianza that was made by her niece, Deborah Norris Logan. I do love this manuscript because um, The manuscript was made for John Watson's Annals of Philadelphia, and he was so embarrassed by this poem um, that he covered it up um, with a little paper before he deposited his manuscript in the library company in the 1830s. Um, And you can see now, where is it here? You can see his writing, and it says, this satiric poetic effusion was by the hand of Hannah Griffiths. I cover it up to hide the apparent ill nature and to avoid offence to those who now survive and are deserving of esteem. Um, you know, Griffiths clearly <laughs> offends the sensibilities of 19th century Philadelphia and this is perhaps one of the reasons why her poetry isn't better known, you know, it's literally covered up. Um, this is a poem that um, Griffiths addressed as Sir William Howe, it's a conventional theme but there's a real edge to it and there's a tremendous force um, to it as well. She writes, you have dissolved the tender bands of nature and torn asunder by the ruthless hand of horrid war, the dear, the soft connections, which heaven had joined and blessed, Till you arose the scourge of desolation on their peace. To you the widow and the orphan look with heartfelt anguish as their source of woe, and in the pang of grief from you demand The husband, father, and the brother lost. Um This is a a very interesting poem, but what's really interesting about it, I think, is that um, uh, she directed... After writing this poem, she rewrote it and directed it um, to the other side. Um, So, uh, she used exactly the same language in reference to the revolutionary crowd and, uh, um, and, and to the Republicans as they took control of Philadelphia. I feel like I'm running out of time. Am I okay? I'll try and be quick with uh, (laughs) my section on Revolutionary Philadelphia. Um, uh, What shall I say? Yes, so... um, uh, I suppose my point is really that the revolutionaries were just as disturbing to Hannah Griffith's sense of place as the British had been. Um, uh, This is a Quaker stronghold, this neighbourhood, and um, Front Street here um, was a a, a place which was um, uh, violently looted. The the homes and the stores of Quaker merchants were uh, were, were looted by the Republicans um, because uh, of their refusal to um, denounce the king or to accept continental currency. And Second Street here, meanwhile, that had lots of taverns um, and lots of coffee houses. And during the war, um, these um, taverns and coffee houses are spaces of political activity and uh, political decision-making. And you can see here that the city tavern is very close um, to Griffith's house. Um, Second Street is also the primary thoroughfare for what's known as Skimmington. Skimmington is a working-class parade or demonstration, and it's an important feature of Philadelphia's popular political culture in the war years. And In the spring of 77, there are several incidents of Skimmington passing right by Griffith's house, in which Quakers, who refuse to engage in the war effort, are paraded down Second Street, treated like traitors like Benedict Arnold, and they're forced to march to the beat of a parodic military drum and the accompaniment of a jeering crowd. On the 4th of July, 77, revolutionary crowds in high spirits took total control of the streets surrounding Griffith's house. They break all the windows that are not illuminated with uh, celebratory candles, and they also break many windows that are illuminated, but are uh, are assumed to be illuminated as sort of acts of insurance rather than political commitment. So there's sort of indiscriminate destruction of property and several several incidents of violence. And Griffiths uh, recalls uh, the, the events of that evening thus, she writes, divine protecting care has kept us through the distractions of the times when the furious mobs as masters of the city were suffered to commit all the disorder they see fit, an overruling hand turned them from our secluded spot with only three women in family. And though they terrified us, they were not permitted to do us any injury. And her hut seems this kind of um, island a feminine calm amidst a bewildering revolutionary storm. Um, and she, she uh, satirically commemorated the events of Independence Day 1777 as a riot of mistaken identity. Um, our Don Quixotes or false guessings direct their balls and lead the van mistake the Tories for the Hessians and Quakers for poor Englishmen. Um, and th- In this riot of mistaken identity, you can no longer tell who is who. But it's interesting in a sense as well that Griffith seems no longer to be able to tell who is who either. Since that language of quixotism is exactly the same as that that she uses in reference to the Mesquianza and to the British military. In fact, the riots of the revolutionaries and the parties of the British seem to her and her sense of place to be um, interchangeably disruptive i'll move through the virginia exiles and i'll just move on to this this um this poem um i think this is the poem that you see on the right hand side um is the one that best expresses hannah griffith's increasingly embattled increasingly disaffected sense of place in philadelphia It's the poem that best captures her lack of faith in either British imperial rule or the American Revolutionary Project. Um, So I'll now move to a conclusion by uh, um, telling you about this poem. So when the Americans regained control of Philadelphia in 1778, um, General Joseph Reed had responsibility for weeding out loyalists and for confiscating loyalist property and for enforcing the treason laws of the revolutionary government. And he was responsible for signing the death warrants of two Quakers who had been convicted of collaborating with the British of treasonable actions against America. And these two men, um, John Roberts and Abraham Carlyle, are condemned to hang. And they become the focus of an agonised political reaction in Philadelphia across um, the whole political and religious spectrum. The city implores Reed to show leniency, but Reed wants to make an example of Roberts and Carlyle, so he stands his ground and the two men are hung. Here on the right side of the slide here you see an extract of the poem that Griffiths wrote on the death of Abraham Roberts and John Carlyle, and she addressed it to General Joseph Reed. She writes, you have dissolved the tender ties of nature and torn asunder by the barbarous hand of cruel laws the dear the soft connections which heaven had joined and blessed till you arose the scourge of desolation on their peace. And as you can see the poem is a reworked version Of the one that Griffiths had written the previous year and that she'd addressed to the British General Howe, she's just changed various key parts of the wording and addressed it to the other side, addressed it to Pennsylvania's revolutionary government and you'll see that she's replaced the word war with the word law in reference to the stringent treason laws which Reed had enforced and that substitution of war for law which is effected several times throughout the poem isn't just to do with the fortuities of rhyme To Hannah Griffiths, war and law had become mutually interchangeable. Justice and violence seemed to have become natural companions. And in a city that was utterly riven and divided by its many conflicts, all forms of political allegiance seemed to her to be uh, completely untenable. So in the end, it didn't matter to Griffiths whether it was a British or American general on the receiving end of her poem. It didn't matter who the poem was addressed to since she'd started to feel there could be no faction that was better than any other, no side at all whose cause was that of rectitude. In a world of political uncertainty and painful public betrayal, there was only for Hannah Griffiths the lessons of the dead." And it's those lessons that for her, Roberts and Carlyle, um, as much as her aunt, Eliza Norris, um, 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 that's that function that they fill for her. This is more of the poem from Roberts and Carlyle. She writes and you the guiltless victims of the day who to a timid city's late reproach and blush of its inhabitants have fallen a prey to laws disgraceful to the man fallen on the cruel shores that gave you birth fallen on the ungrateful shores your father planned your father's planned on the firm basis of true liberty the laws of justice and the rights of man long shall your names survive the brutal deed and fair transmitted down to better times stand the reproach of ours, when lawless power and wealth by rapping gained shall shroud its head in infamous oblivion, or beheld the warning, not example of mankind. And this is this is the kind of result of that dream that she had. This is the, the, the end result of the apocalypse on my, uh, on Market Street. Um, in, in its wonderful minatory tone, she's she's writing in a prophetic kind of register, and it's very powerful stuff and it's very characteristic of her poetry. She has perhaps the most cynical, the most embittered, the most sarcastic poetic voice I've ever encountered from a woman writer in this period, and I think you can really see it in this passage, in those lines about liberty and the rights of man. Um, the sarcastic tone of the poem doesn't just say, you know, well, here are these great principles on which Philadelphia was founded and and uh, from which the uh, present generation has unfortunately deviated. Um, it's suggesting that, you know, those founding principles themselves are are questionable. The poem makes all ideals of political liberty, including those of the Quaker founders, I think, um, whom Griffiths had had formally idealized, the focus of a a sort of a hollow laugh, um, a disaffected hollow laugh. And it suggests just how far she felt that the American Revolution had produced a world in which for women, there were no political truths anymore. Um, There was only political doubt and uncertainty. Um, So Griffith's poetry in the post-revolutionary decades reflects her increasingly beleaguered sense of place. Her writing bespeaks the admonitory voice of a Quaker femininity that is harried and isolated, but always consistent amidst the storms and distractions of the times. And she legitimates this position by describing her house, her hut, number eight Norris Alley, as a protected, blessed space, the space of God's Quaker elect. A dark cloud seems hovering over us, she writes. I wish we may all be favored to stand within the sacred enclosure of divine safety. Ye poor snail had rather keep in her shell than go out of it. Um, And this notion of herself as a humble snail who refuses to move really sums up the voice of Hannah Griffiths in her later years. And she stays put in Norris Alley until she dies. She stayed in Philadelphia through international crises and national revolution, through political change, through war and through pestilence. She was there when George Washington rode triumphantly into town as America's first president. She was there through the years of fashionable Federalist bombast when Philadelphia became the capital of the new United States. She was there as the wealthy people began to move away from the dockside into their own exclusive neighbourhoods, as her neighbourhood started to be populated by mariners and prostitutes when it turned into a slum. And she was also there through three terrifying yellow fever epidemics when the streets of the city emptied and the bodies of the dead lay unburied around her in in, in the yards and alleyways in front and behind her house. So, the snail uh, stayed in her shell, despite this experience of political disaffection, um, in the face of disillusionment with the Quaker establishment, in the face of her personal grief um, um, and in the face of all the horror and confusion that came from living in the midst of an urban theatre of war. And it's from inside that tent, that shell, that house on Norris Alley, that she refers to as my poor hut, that her wonderful poetry um, really emerges. I shall stop there. that's Norris all to do. Forminent yourself
0: for questions for this week we also don't have the mic that went missing last week can everybody. Are you got it? Oh it's great. Okay. It's come. Uh so we ask that you ask your question into the mic so that we can get it on the podcast. Uh test
2: What kind of correspondence did she have with other learned ladies there's lots and lots um, there 's lots in the library company in Haverford and in Swarthmore. I think it 's a shame that she never corresponded with, with any British women, but she she corresponds quite extensively with women um, in jersey delaware new york and and across Pennsylvania. She has lots of relatives and friends living throughout Pennsylvania yeah. Um, they do keep her letters. The Quakers keep everything. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, absolutely. She, she she has a voluminous correspondence. And um, what can I say? Her friends and correspondents really actually sustained her way of life in Philadelphia. They sent her fruit when there was no food in the city. You know, she would borrow just constantly borrow things off them. Borrow their servants. Borrow furnishings off them. You know, and I, in a sense, her correspondence is a, is a medium of um, uh, not not just literary circulation, but also maintaining her material life. Yeah. yeah.
0: Coming, Alex. Hold on a minute. (laughs) There you go.
1: It just seems that her poems speak of a sort of embittered love for Philadelphia after she lived there for a while. Do you think she lost her faith in Philadelphia, or the people, or both, perhaps?
2: I think that um, she had a kind of uh, she couldn't she couldn't lose the love of philadelphia i think that was something that was totally written through every fiber of her being i think that she just saw it as a city under perpetual occupation by people who didn't appreciate it i think you know she was the only person who really understood philadelphia and understood what it was about i think that's part of her refusal ever to get out of it you know yeah you
0: guys are making me work today one side, one side, it's good. I'm gonna miss my run today, anyways. <laughs> Go ahead. I think I misunderstood. Uh, uh, Griffiths' parents died young. Yes, when, when she was young. That's right. And she was raised by the Morrises then.
2: Yes, that's right. Okay. but yeah. She was. Her parents were
0: Griffiths.
2: That her parents were Griffiths. Okay. Yeah. Um, she's a Norris but she doesn't really think of herself as. you know what I mean, she's just distantly related to them, but in in the way of many Quaker families, you know, they they took her in and brought her up
0: I'm interested by um, how often early American writers send Philadelphia up in apocalypse, thinking about (laughs) George Lepard's Quaker City as another example can you you say something about what that, Uh. how you understand that tradition, what where was that apocalyptic impulse coming from?
2: I think it's just it's, there's a, the, it's the dual impulse of Quakers. I think you know on the one hand you have this green country town, but it can never be that. It's it's always going to be turning into a metropolis, and as soon as it starts to turn into the metropolis, the threat of apocalypse is just around the corner. Don't you think that's it? That it's you know it, it, in the sense the Quaker city is itself a contradiction. I, I think I think that's the problem um, that the, the Quaker city engenders apocalypse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if that's a
0: I, I think I'll follow up here, uh, Kate, with my questions, it seems to build on, because one of the things that I think is, is is probably people might take for granted about the brilliance of your method that you just demonstrated today is you're able to, to relocate for us a voice that may have been lost to history precisely because of the rich um, sources, archive that you draw on, right? You have this keen sense of the architecture, a sense of the place of Philadelphia, a sense of the material culture, the textiles, the... Um, you know, locating Griffiths for us in a way that she's never been located in such a way you show us that it's not... All these figures aren't so easily locatable on any one side or the other, that she seems to be neither pro... be a loyalist or a revolutionary. And so I'm, I'm wondering if you're finding in your research that there are a lot... Not just women, but other... Are there a lot of these other figures that have been lost to us precisely because the kind of historical methods... Uh, and research methods that we as scholars have brought to bear on the question have, have not been able to bring that rich archive that produces, right, the, the kind of voices that you've been able to produce.
2: Yes. Um, I think what's, what's weird, or I found weird anyway when I started working on this, was that all the women from whatever... Whatever their starting point, whatever their religious affiliation, their political associations, all those sorts of things, none of them think the revolution is any good. You know, none of them particularly like Britain, but none of them like the revolution. They all end up at the same point, the same point of disaffection. And I think it's it's all very different. And you know that the, the histories of all of these positions are very different and very messy. Mm-hmm. Um, but at heart, they're all the same. But I think that goes for a lot of the men too, though. Seriously, I, I I think that is that is the case. I just happen to be looking at women, but I think that. Yes, the same picture could be built about men.
0: Thank you for that talk, it's all fascinating stuff. I, I was really struck by the line in one of the poems and you lingered on it when she talks about the only voice of, um, that women have is a negative. Um, and I, I was thinking of the, the various meanings that negative seems to carry there. It's a silence, it's a space or an absence, but it's also a no. And I, I, I'm, mm. I'm wondering in the, in the kind of Quaker simplicity um, that you, you're pointing to in, in a lot of um, her, her life and her movements, um, whether you see renunciation, because a lot of the poems seem really celebratory of the kind of grit of the city and its, its noise and its smoke. Um, and and so, so I'm wondering how, how you see that negative mood um,
2: most consistently expressed throughout her life and her work, if that's a kind of absence or if it's more of a renunciation, I think you've you've totally put your finger on it there that it is all about it's all about saying it's about saying no um, and that is and, and somehow she draws that into a very a very Quaker topos. one of the poems I didn't have chance to talk about this one, which is a wonderful biblical paraphrase she wrote on the third chapter of Habakkuk, absolutely sums up what you what you were just saying there about about refusal but determination in the space of refusal, you know, renunciation and absence, but you know, that forming the basis of a determined religious identity. Um, this is a wonderful poem. Okay. It's, uh, you know, this, I, I think this is my favorite of her poems actually. What though the fig tree blossom not or shoot her spreading branches to the western gale, though the rich olive shall refuse her fruit and all the labor of the vintage fail and though pale famine dries the barren field, nor the kind soil its former blessings spare, and stalls no more the useful herd shall yield, nor sickly folds produce their fleecy care. Yet in the Lord Jehovah will I trust, and in the God of my salvation joy. He will support the pious and the just, herself, of course, though famine rages and the sword destroy. And I I read a lot of biblical paraphrases written by women, and I think this, this is just really one of the best, you know, it's fabulous. Actually, and she loves this passage. She writes about three different versions of precisely the same um, passage in different meters. So, you know, it's obviously very important to her.
1: Hi, Um, I found it so fascinating what, well, you're talking general, thank you for it. Um, But her use of, you know, things like saying my poor hut and her humility and how she really espouses these um, these virtues that, like, compared to Benjamin Franklin, you know, just seem she seems so sincere. And so I'm just curious because you know we hear Franklin in his autobiography saying these things that are completely not true. Later on, you find out that it's you know just a, just a, a ruse, just is like this artifice. And so I'm just curious. When you say that she only ate off of pewter, and you know she spends her money on books and all these things, like, do you ever find a sense of construction or
2: or guile with her? No, I have to say, totally not. She is that is seriously what she's like. I think what one of the most appealing things about her is that she's very self-aware. She knows, in a sense, that how she's being read. Um, she also has a, a sense of humour. She's able to poke fun at herself and her tastes, you know, and, uh, you know, she's able to say, oh, you know, uh, my tattered bays on my terrible carpet, you know, that's, that's just what I'm like, you know what I mean? That's, it, it's, it, is, it's, it really isn't a construction. Though I, that's not to say that she's not using um, the usual methods and mechanisms of, um, of uh, literary creation to build and confirm that identity, but I don't think there's any kind of, you know, there's not the, the same kinds of Franklinian... Um, uh, contrivances, yeah. and I yeah. think that's her honesty is part of why. At least I
1: like, wow, she's great. <laughs> she's honest.
2: I'm, I'm sure she would have been very annoying, actually, if we would met. Everyone <laughs> <laughs> um, I just had a question: about her passion for her place and her, her sort of deep knowledge of the contours um, of the city uh, makes me wonder: did she ever did all this like sort of um, passion? and uh despair and this this sort of ambition for the place that that she loves so much did she ever did it ever lead her to act um, within her neighborhood within her city, or is the sort of decision to move into this this space and to hunker down and to remain there? Is that the defining act that she she made that's it i think it, it comes down to what i don 't know who you are, but precisely the point that you were making that the action is a negative action it 's the act of refusal you know, and in a sense. The positive thing is writing about it voluminously as she does, you know, um, she writes all day every day and copies what she's already written, keeps on writing and copying and that that to me is the action. You know, I think what's sad is that she felt when she moves to Philadelphia that she really is involved in the, the street culture and the life of the city but that, that involvement becomes a retreat, um, yeah.
1: Did she ever get published at all? Did, I, did, she, did her poems get spread by her friends at all in handbills? Was there anything outside Th- of that circle?
2: So the, f- the poem I read, um, the one about the female patriots and though we've no voice but a negative and so on, that's that's reproduced in a newspaper. That's one of a handful of poems that's reproduced um, in in, a, in newspapers in Philadelphia. But her names, her name is never attached to those those poems. Um, but the more interesting form of publication to me is the Massive circulation of her poetry in her friend's commonplace books and among her correspondence. So I, I think that is a form of publication. It's just perhaps one that we don't recognise um, as well. Certainly, I think it, it received. Her poems were widely read, despite never, you know, appearing in print. Yeah. And she was certainly well known in Philadelphia. You know, she was notorious. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Time for one more, if anyone has. A
2: question. Sure.
0: Proportionately speaking, Americans were reading more than almost any other place. I mean, Thomas Paine, probably two out of every three people read it. Do you mean to say that all these things coming out, no professional publisher decided it would be a good idea to put this out in pamphlet form or something? Was it the political bias that they didn't understand? Or was it just uh, she just refused? What was the problem?
2: I think it's just... if you think about what, what Quaker women are like um, at this time, I think that that form of copying and circulation, that to them is publication. You know, So if someone died and they would come to Hannah Griffiths and say, would you please write a poem? And, and that, would, that poem would be copied and circulated and it would form a kind of collective mm-hmm. memorial. But I think you're right. Americans were reading and writing uh, more than anybody else. And I think in Britain, um, British women were very jealous, actually, of American women, who they felt were these, these tremendous um, um, uh, um, sources of, of learning, of, and political learning, particularly. Um, so I, I, it's, it's interesting to me that American women gain a notoriety in Britain for being tremendously learned and being tremendous writers without ever actually appearing in print. Um, yeah.
0: I want to uh, have all of us give a collective um, Round of applause and thanks for just a fantastic talk and great question and answer. Thank That's you, nice. Thank you. Hey. Thank you.